Welcome to the Art and Science of Success. I'm your host, Jonathan Brown. Now this 12-part podcast series has been created to help you make the most of the recovery opportunities, however long they last. In the last 12 years, I've worked with some of the world's top leaders, companies and teams to help them create success in highly challenging situations. And in that time, I've got to know some of the world's top practitioners and researchers into the toughest situations we can face. As we work to rebuild our businesses and even our communities, I wanted to offer some free resources and insights that I know help leaders because we use them every day helping our clients to deliver amazing results. So we asked them, what insights and ideas do you have that leaders can apply to help them survive and thrive whatever happens in the next few months or even the next few years? We have to find ways of inspiring our people to become even better. And if there was ever a time for you to do truly great work, to truly be your best more often, it's today. So I hope these podcasts will help you in some small way to create even more success for you and for those you care about. My guest today is Tom Colditz, one of the world's top leader and coach developers. In his current role as Executive Director at the Annan John Doerr Institute for New Leaders at Rice University, he now leads the world's biggest coaching programme. Before this, Tom had a decorated career in the US Army, beginning as a psychology PhD artilleryman, eventually making it to the US Military Academy West Point. And it was there where he led the world's biggest research project into in-extremist leadership since the Second World War. His book, In Extremist Leadership, Leading as If Your Life Depended on It, introduces research and other work to the world in 2007. In 2012, on retirement from the US Army, he became director of Yale's Leadership Development Program, and in 2015, he was persuaded by legendary investor duo John and Ann Dorr to transform student leadership standards at Rice University in such a way that it could be scaled around the world. So in Tom, we have a fantastic mix of research and results-obsessed psychologist, army general, startup entrepreneur, and all-round fantastic leader. Now, in this episode, we get into his leadership lessons growing up and in his time in the army, all with the focus on what business leaders need to focus on in the next 12 months as we come out of lockdown. He's got some very interesting research-proven ideas on leadership programs and how most of them are making critical mistakes. And typical of Tom, he suggests some very simple solutions. It's also inspiring as his work shows that you can develop leaders from any position, something that will be crucial as we deal with the leadership crisis we're facing currently. So if you're interested in or responsible for any area of leadership or young leader development, this is a must listen. Some of the stuff that really struck me when I was preparing for the talk was just um, about the experiences you had growing up in a small, I think it's a small town in South Illinois. Is that right? That's correct. Because um, I, I mean, we can look at the, the, the very successful leader that you are now, but, but the thing that the sense I got from some of the things you've said is that a lot of your leadership lessons came from, came from home, really. I just wonder if you could share some of your experiences of your early experiences and how that helped you become the leader that you are today. Sure. Well, my father was a civil engineer, self-employed, and my mother was a nurse who, who stopped nursing when she had my brother and I, but both of them were heavily engaged in leading in this small town. My father was on the school board. He was respected in the town. My mother tended to nurse everyone in the town. She gave people injections, she'd take uh, blood pressure readings and so forth. And so I was probably 18 years old before I knew anyone who didn't know my parents. And consequently, it was an environment where the things that I did mattered because it got reported back to my parents almost immediately. And so I had to really emulate their leadership. I had to act like a leader 
or, uh, or they'd have been disappointed. So early on in my school years and uh, in young adulthood, I've, I focused on trying to give back to that community and be a leader in that community. And it was just understood that that's what we did in our family, that it was about other people and not just about ourselves. What was it about that, that community that, you, that, that most stands out when you look back on it? You know, I think it was the social obligation, the moral obligation of leading. In a small town, you know, you don't really have a lot of social services. Sometimes there are people that need a lot of help. And consequently, if, if leaders don't step up, then people are just left behind. They just fall through the cracks. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about leadership as an obligation to other people. And that really served me well when I got to the military where thinking that being a leader is all about self-aggrandizement is a huge uh, uh, trap. I mean, it's just a toxic, uh, unfortunate uh, trap. And so I, I never fell into that trap. I always considered my role as a leader as taking care of other people and getting the job done. Mm. And so you, 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 you're there, and I know you, you, you became an Eagle Scout, Um when you were at, um, at home, your dad was an Eagle Scout. Is that right? He was. He got his Eagle in 1946. Uh, I got mine in 1972, and my brother shortly after. And so you, you get your Eagle Scout, you finish high school, and then you go to Vanderbilt. Yeah, Vanderbilt was a real eye-opener to me. Uh, Vanderbilt is an expensive school. A lot of very privileged people. Uh, we're going to school there at the time, a lot of really bright people. Uh, and the two things I found out very quickly is I was not the smartest person in the room, uh, which is a great thing for a leader to understand. Uh, you, you have to listen to other people as a leader. And the second thing I found out was that my family was not wealthy. I mean, you know, in a small town, you know, if you make kind of a middle-class living, uh, you, you feel pretty well off. And we did have everything we needed. But I went to Vanderbilt and I had classmates who already had Porsches and, you know, it was uh, a whole different uh, game. So going to Vanderbilt really opened my eyes to the rest of the world and allowed me to understand what, what the world is like. And one of the really critical things for a business leader is to deal with the world as it is, not with the world they wish it was. And, uh, and so I, I started having to deal with the world as it was, and that was a great development for me. And you, um, did, so did you get a scholarship to Vanderbilt then? You said it was, a, it was a, a wealthy university. Yeah, so I had an Army ROTC scholarship, and that's the way I got my military commission, was that I, they paid for my schooling 100%, but then I owed them four years of military service uh, afterwards. So I, I quickly went off on a delay to go to graduate school, finished all the work for my PhD, except my dissertation. And then I went on active duty in the military. So I was really a lieutenant with a PhD. It was a very rare occurrence in our army. And then um, what, when you look back on your military career, what were the, what were the key lessons that stand out for you there? Well, you know, I was just really impressed with the level of selflessness uh, among the leaders I found in the military. Most of them 
viewed leadership as an obligation to their soldiers and as an obligation to their country. And while there were some selfish and self-centered leaders, uh, that was the exception, not the rule. So I tended to learn a lot about leadership in the military, particularly because my assignments uh, tended to alternate between having a muddy boots leadership role in a tactical unit versus going to the Pentagon or being a general's aide or having a more cerebral uh, role. And so my whole career was back and forth between doing leadership and then leadership policy and studying other, other leaders. So I couldn't have had a better life experience for learning to lead and learning to teach leadership than I did in the military. So, and I'm wondering, are those are they the parts of your personality? Are they so you've got the you've got the artilleryman, um, you know, that can that can knock down a wall, and then you've got the the scientist that would tell you exactly how it's been done or how it should be done. Because I, I also noticed that you, you were drawn to um, jumping out of planes at Vanderbilt, and that's that's been one of the the, the, the the one of your passions in your life, right? Yeah, I you know when I was at Vanderbilt, I as an ROTC cadet, I went through the Army Airborne School and got my basic parachutist badge, and I got addicted right then. And so when I went back to Vanderbilt, I started jumping out of airplanes that were taking off from pastures in Tennessee, uh, and and then just sort of continued to do it. And so after three or four years, I had instructional ratings. I was a, a, a federal parachute rigger. I had a rigger certificate. Uh, I learned how to sew as a, as a parachutist, as a parachute rigger. And, uh, and I enjoyed that sport because it had consequences. You know, it was very real. You either took care of your equipment and trained yourself well, or you got hurt. And, uh, and so it really fit my personality quite well. And I continued to do it. I, I put in maybe 30 years of, of consistently jumping out of airplanes. And I still like to get into vertical wind tunnels and fly around a little bit. So you don't jump anymore? I really don't. Um, you know, I reached a point in my life where I, first of all, left the military, which meant while I was in the military, I couldn't be sued. There was no way to, to, to expose myself to lawsuit. Uh, and I also didn't have as many assets. But now, my, you know, my wife and I have quite a few assets and, and I have no legal protection. So it just didn't make sense for a, you know, 60 plus year old guy to, to be running around 20 somethings, jumping off airplanes anymore. I mean, I loved it and I still do, but there are other things in life now. Yeah, 100%. So in uh, lessons from the, the military and you got, you're talking about selfless service and that sounds like it was a, it would feel like home really, I would imagine that, that you'd, you'd been surrounded by people like that in your, in your town, the people who put others before themselves. Yeah, I think so. You know, my parents encouraged me to do the ROTC scholarship. I decided I would do that instead of going to a service academy like the Naval Academy or West Point. Uh, because I wanted to have more of a civilian educational experience. And I could still get my lieutenant's bar by going through ROTC. So, so for me, it was, a, it was a very good fit. 
And uh, I learned early on that the more rank you have in the military, the less you use it. Uh, it's more about influence and, and real leadership than it is about any kind of authoritarian directive ordering people about. Do you know, and that's, that's one of the lessons that, that most, most business leaders don't get is that if you're actually having to use any kind of force and something's gone wrong somewhere, and you military guys are, are just totally on that, right? And you do, and the, the efforts, I've never known people that I've worked with on your side who are so collaborative, so keen to find a peaceful solution to something. Um, but also if they need to, then they will blow up a house. And, um, but, but so much effort put into resolving problems peacefully first. Yeah, it's, it's really important to use influence rather than just commanding people about. And, and on the business side, when people start doing whatever you say simply because you say it, eventually mistakes are going to be made. And, uh, you know, those kind of leaders generally blame the people who are working for them. When in reality, most of the time, those people are doing what they think the boss wants done. Uh, and they don't push back against it when they think it's unwise. They just do it because they're used to being ordered about. So it's really important, not just from a, a leader effectiveness standpoint, but in terms of outcomes in business, that you lead with this informal authority so that people can help shape your thinking and can, can help you. Because if they, you know, if they think that you're just telling them what to do, they're going to do that whether they think it's wise or not. And one of the scariest things I heard as a lieutenant was when I gave a sergeant a directive and he turned to me and he said, all right, sir, I'm going to do exactly what you told me to do. I knew right then, you know, I knew right then I was in trouble. Uh, so, you know, order less, uh, ask more. It pays off in all kinds of ways in business for sure. So you, you finished your time in the military as a, as you retired as a brigadier general. Um, so what, what does a general do in the army? Well, you know, most military officers have a specialty. So I was an artilleryman most of my career and there are infantrymen and there are medical corps uh, people. But when you're a general, you are a generalist. You take off that subspecialty. And now you're at the executive level uh, synchronizing systems. So, you know, it's a, it's a huge mistake for a general to think of themselves as an infantryman or a tanker or, or any of those things. You have to think of yourself at a higher level in the organization where all of those subspecialties are synchronized. And I will tell you that as an artilleryman, I spent a tremendous amount of time synchronizing the other components of the military, bringing in infantry and having helicopters come in and then artillery. And it's like a giant orchestra when you're, when you're fighting a fight as an artilleryman. And so it was a great preparation for executive level decision-making because I had to take all the systems and the timing into account. That's what executives do. That's what a general is. Uh, is someone that can synchronize all the elements of whatever organization they're in. 
Um, when you think back to the, the best generals that you've worked for, what were the, some of the things that they did so brilliantly that, that business people could learn from? Oh, gosh. Um, I could talk for hours and hours. Um, one, of the, one of the best lessons that I learned, I think, was from a well-known Army general officer named David Petraeus. And I was working for General Petraeus um, as, an, as an Army major. And he was running a large planning cell in one of our best divisions, the 101st Airborne Division. And uh, we had a problem with one of, the, one of the officers who was incompetent, uh, who just couldn't keep up. And I thought that someone with General Petraeus's level of competence and ability and demanding standards would have created a train wreck around this officer. And he did not spend 10 minutes trying to fix that guy. He had others, including me, go down and make sure that everything coming out of that cell was correct, was accurate, was, uh, in other words, that it functioned. And, you know, I talked to him about that. And he said, if you, if you try to fix everyone that you uncover in your life is, is not good at their job, You'll spend 90% of your time on the worst 10% of your people. He said, instead, work on the people who are, who are excellent and get them to get the job done. And don't spend time playing Mr. Fix-It with a handful of poor performers. And I've, I've kept that attitude my whole career, that it's about getting the job done. It's about empowering really good people to get that job done. And if there happens to be someone who's who's clogging up the works, go around them. You know, just go around them. Don't burn your time on people that aren't performing. You can eventually get rid of them. You know, you can eventually make sure they're they're out of the way. But in the short term, you've got a job to do. Don't play Mr. Fix-It when you've got a job to do. Hmm. And I guess what what you can then do is you can you can pass it on to a to a more junior person who could see it as a development opportunity. So for you, it could have been appropriate use of your time if you chose to improve his performance. But what you just said there, what, what General Petraeus said, that's exactly what the Gallup organization came out with in 99, isn't it? You know, we first break all the rules and, and focus, on, focus on strengths, focus on your best people and, you know, manage, same, exactly, manage around the, the ones that are not performing and, and quietly deal with their performance. Exactly, exactly. And I had peers who never learned that lesson and I would watch them struggle with, you know, a handful of people who were either borderline criminals or they were incompetent or, you know, they just had problems. And their whole life was problems. Uh, and the mission is more important than fixing some individual who's over their head in their job. Mm. And so... Other lessons from, from other, other great generals that you've worked with? Well, another really good one, maybe, maybe the best general I ever worked with was a general named Eric Shinseki, who was our Army Chief of Staff, uh, went on to be the Secretary of Veterans Affairs for Barack Obama. Uh, and uh, General Shinseki really taught me to um, pay attention to large-scale systems so he had an army physician, a, a colonel who eventually was the army surgeon general. And I run a team 
to completely rewrite the army's quality of life um, programs, you know, the programs that take care of soldiers and it includes pay and housing and, you know, all of those things. And we found some real disparities in the way funds were allocated, you know, to make it simple, uh, the most important things were not getting the most funds. And we were able to re, you know, reshuffle that deck and, and make things work better. So I appreciated General Shinseki letting me work at that level, you know, looking at those kind of programs for 750,000 people in the army. Um, and then the other general officer is one that's not nearly as visible as Petraeus or Shinseki. It was a three-star general named John Pickler. And General Pickler taught me how to respect people in our daily interactions. And I'll give you an example. Um, promotions are very common in military organizations, whether it's a sergeant or a lieutenant or what have you. And when, when Pickler would attend a promotion and, and promote the, the sergeant or the officer or whoever, it was very predictable what he was gonna do. He would recognize every family member there by name and refer to where they had come from for that soldier's promotion. He would then refer to every job that soldier had in the army without notes, without consulting anyone. And he would, he would say great things, obviously, ab about the person being promoted. He would promote them. And then he would give them the oath of office again with no notes. He would have them recite, he would recite the oath of office and they would follow him through that with no notes. And I asked him one time, how did you, how did you, how do you do that? And he said, well, it's a little formulaic, you know, I mean, most of us go through certain career progression and I just study it until I know it. And I said, why do you do that? And he said, because the people coming to see that person being promoted, and the person you're promoting deserve it. They don't deserve you standing up there with a hastily scribbled set of notes and, and stumbling through some promotion. And I never forgot that. And consequently, I'm pretty good when I'm talking about the things that people have done. You know, in the civilian sector, you don't have promotions quite as often, but you often have opportunities to recognize people. And when you recognize people by going deep into their families and into their history and where they grew up, it affects them that you took the time to learn that. I mean, everyone on my staff, I know every one of their children's names, every one of their children's ages. I know where they grew up, where they went to college. Uh, and I often refer to that when we're recognizing them for something. And, uh, and I try to recognize them as much as I can because they do a great job. Mm. Fantastic. When you look back on your career as a general, or as, a, you know, as a soldier, um, what lessons do you, would, you, would you most hope um, the people around you took from your leadership? Well, you know, I hope, 
I hope they looked at my leadership and realized that I, I genuinely cared about them and that I felt that my obligation as a leader was more to them than it was to me or my career. You know, I would have been very disappointed if the people who I'd worked with would have had the impression that, you know, he's just looking for the next promotion. Um, I really enjoyed it when people would indicate that they knew I was going to take care of them or that I knew that I wasn't going to allow a bad thing to happen without pushing back against it. I was never a yes man to senior officers, particularly in front of my troops. Uh, and while I always wanted to, to satisfy my boss in terms of achieving the mission, I would never do it at the, at the uh, you know, disadvantage of my troops. And I, would, and I would definitely never do it by stepping on a pier one of the things that disappoints me the most that I've seen in business is that people who step on other people's backs are often rewarded for that. And that was the one thing that I would look at and never advantage or promote an officer after that. If an officer couldn't get the respect of their peers and if an officer, you know, used their peers in negative ways or they, they tried to withhold good ideas to themselves and, and wouldn't share that across the organization. That was career death to me. I, I would never select an officer for promotion who behaved that way. And I think a lot of times in business, it's so much about the performance that it's overlooked how toxic those people are in the organization. And, um, the military has gone off after that in a big way. Uh, just in the last two, two years, the Army, the U.S. Army, has built a review system for the people that they select for battalion and brigade command. So just because you're on that list doesn't mean you're going to go. You have to go to basically an assessment process where they find the officers who are bad with their peers, who are abusive to their troops, who perhaps abuse alcohol or other, other drugs. And it's a very rigorous process that includes professional coaching. And um, I think that's really important because there are people who perform very highly that are toxic in organizations. And in the process of promoting and advancing people, good leaders have to sort that out. They can't be fooled by that kind of person. Or they'll wind up with a whole array of high performers who are toxic in the organization. So how would you how would you find that stuff out then? So you have to pay attention, but the but the indicators are there all the time, and they're particularly they're particularly prominent among the rank and file. You know, people that are on, working on the job on the factory floor. You know, they know. They hear things, you know, they know uh, who is selfish and who is focused on the whole organization and making all boats rise. And when people ask me, who, who do I, who would I pick for, for command at the next level? Well, it's the people who are already there. 
And what that means is they're making all boats rise in the organization, not just their piece of it. And there are many people who are very good at making their piece of an organization run and, you know, abusing the rest of it or, or being unconcerned with the rest of it. And think about that, what that means to a boss who, who has to be concerned about the whole thing. Now he's got a spotlighter who's running one organization well and doing nothing to help him or her bring the whole organization up. Those people don't deserve to be promoted. And, and not only do they don't deserve it, but they're toxic once they are. And is, is that when you is that perhaps the most important thing for a general's view? Then is it is it the, your your job is is like you say you take the generalist view, so your job is to make all boats rise and to work with people to do that. So you, not only are you contributing to the whole, but you're trying to help everybody, the ones who are most helping to contribute to that as well. Exactly. Uh, I work for a general. I was an aide for a, a terrific guy named John Crosby who was a two-star general. He was the chief of field artillery. And uh, when, you, when you're a general officer in the army, uh, you can be distinguished from a long way off because you have two stripes down your trousers instead of a single thick stripe. And one day, John Crosby, you know, I was looking, I said something about his pants having two stripes. And he says, you know why, why generals have two stripes? And I said, no, I don't. And he said, the first stripe is for performance as an army officer. The second stripe is for being a personnel expert. And so a big part of executive responsibility is picking the next level, is, is focusing on who do we grow in the organization uh, and advance so that we get better and better and not worse and worse. So that was his, that was his view that half his job was personnel management, right. finding the right people, finding <coughs> the people and making sure they didn't advance. So if you were, if you were advising a, um, a leader now in, in, in business um, and they're saying, I need to develop my next generation or who, the, the, who let me rephrase that. What qualities would you look for in the people who were going to lead a company out of out of lockdown and to, to speed up their recovery? So leading a company out of lockdown, um, the first thing I would look for are people who actually do that through leadership rather than management. So to manage an organization out of a lockdown, you tell everybody to go back to work. A leader goes back to work. That's what I'm doing here. My staff's not in yet. I'm back here and they know I'm back here and they're trickling in and they will continue to trickle in. And the reason is that I led the way, not because I ordered them to be back because look in the pandemic, a lot of people are still frightened. And if you start telling people immediately, well, you have to be back at this point or, or what have you, you're going to wind up with some pushback. You might lose a couple people. Uh, all of that's unnecessary. If you show them the way, you show them it's safe, um, and you're a leader, they're going to come back. And if they don't like working with you, well, then you weren't a leader in the first place, and they're not going to come back. So that, I think, is 
is one of the keys. Lead people out of the pandemic. Don't manage them out of it. It's too personal. You know, people are thinking in terms of risking their health and the health of their family. That's not something for management. That's something that's important enough for leadership. And so, uh, you know, that's the first thing. I also think that it's a great time to understand that you deal with the world as it is, not as you want it to be. So the conditions in the pandemic and what that means for your workforce, you don't get to set that. That's the world as it is. You know, you have to understand the science. You have to understand the government guidance and any guidance higher in your organization. And, And then you deal with it that way because you don't have the right to say, well, you know, we really need to get back at it. So we're going to come back a little early or we're going to come back and not wear masks or, or what have you. The pandemic gets a vote. And so you have to deal with the world as it is. And a person in a business who can't deal with the world as it is, who are my customers? What does my customer value? You know, how do I get to that point with them. A person who can't deal with those kinds of realities is not going to be an effective executive. You have to deal with the real world. Um, um, so what advice would you have for someone? So because when I look at your career, there's a, there's, a, there's a massive strand and a massive, a massive pattern of, of you finding the evidence. Um, and when you arrived at West Point, um, head of behavioral sciences, I think, you, you know, you ask the question, where's, it, where's the evidence for what we're teaching? And then 9-11 hit, and then it gets real serious real quick. And then you went out and found the evidence. And so what can a leader do and what can a general do to, to have better sense making of understanding what's happening? Well, you know, <clears throat> you have to know when you have evidence and when you have anecdotes. Uh, you, you know, you have to know the difference between valid evidence and suggestive information. And I'll I'll give you an example. Uh, In my own business now, where we're focused on developing leaders in universities, most often when when organizations and universities, and it's the same in business, when when they assess their leader development programming, they look at process variables, how many people attended, did they like it? Uh, you know, were the ratings high from these people? That's process. What we have to focus on in this business are outcomes. How did the person change behaviorally? How did they change in measured emotional intelligence? How did they change cognitively in terms of their leader identity, their sense of purpose? Um, those sorts of measurable outcome variables. So there's a tremendous difference between measuring the outcomes that you're looking for and the process of the programs that you're trying to use to get those outcomes. Most people stop at the process level. The, the outcome level is really too hard for them. I know, at, the risk of, um, at the risk of sounding like a past U.S. president, um, we can declare mission accomplished at, at the 
when we, when we look at everyone's been or 40 60 percent have been through a leadership program or whatever it's like well and we're not changing and we've not got peace yet so let's just hold off on that one so right. you, you said something there um tom about leadership identity um and one of the things i think is is becoming increasingly important is that is, is for people to to record to see themselves as a leader and, and you know if i'm as i'm running a business i want people to be proactive to be adaptive to take it you know to take an instruction or the leader's intent and to to make stuff work think for themselves make a difference so what have you done with your students in helping them develop a leadership identity that we could translate into into business not just young people but but older people as well so let me give you an example from our coaching program and we coach about 850 students a year here so it's pretty sizable in a school that only has a 4,000 person undergraduate student body. Um, In going through that coaching, the students get to choose what kinds of things they wanna work on with their coach. And far away, the most popular things are affiliated with themselves. So many lack self-confidence and they work on that. Some lack self-awareness, so they work on that. Uh, some lack high levels of empathy. You know, they don't understand how other people are feeling. So we work on that. What we find is in working on that, they build an identity as a leader. So going in in our pretests, they don't think of themselves as a leader very much. But when they come out, their, their identity has been raised in terms of leader identity. And what happens after that is really critical because our research has shown that when you elevate a person's leader identity, they begin to onboard other leader skills and abilities. So you can't possibly teach everyone everything, but if they think they're a leader, they go after the things that they need. They also go after leader roles. So they're about four times as likely to seek out a position as a leader, which will, of course, develop them because of their identity, because they elevated their identity. And we know, by the way, that it's causal. And the way we figure that out is we have everybody self-select into our programming, and then we'll take 50 of them and we will delay them. So they're all selected. And we measure pre-test and post-test to the people that got the programming and didn't. And that shows us that the programming itself is what's causing this change, not just we're picking all the, the best leaders from the beginning. You know, early theories in leadership were that, you know, you either had it or you didn't. It was called the great man theory. It was in the 50s. People still act as if that's true. You know, they work so hard to select just the right people as leaders. When in fact, probably half of the people in the university could be outstanding leaders if they're trained properly and developed properly. Um, But we see a lot of, of universities that have very small programs, very selective programs. So not only are they buying into great man theory, but it's an elitist view of leadership. And, and we work with 40% of the student body. We think all of our student body 
is high potential and deserves development. So you know, that's that's um, your work there is is both it's utterly inspiring and also really really very depressing. Um, do you know, not because it, it's inspiring in the sense of so so. So, so the criteria of your program is if you want to, you'll get in, right? If you say, if, you, if you're a student at Rice and you would like leadership development for whatever reason, and you come to Rice, you come to the Door Institute and say, hey, I'd like some help, you get help. And in fact, I know you, you also go out to people who haven't asked for help, but you say, hey, you're doing a leadership thing. Whether we agree with what you're doing or not, we can help you. So anybody doing any kind of role, they get offered, they're offered support, right? So that's your measurement. And it sounds like you have no criteria for selection. Where you've put all your energy is, okay, so once someone said, I want in, how can we help them be successful? Yeah, you know, one of the big mistakes that's made in business uh, and in universities is that they put too much into this notion of selection of who gets leader development. The best selection is that they want it. And when people self-select into development, then they do better. What happens in business is that people get marked as high potentials. Yeah. And, and when that happens, they, they put them all into a development process. Probably half of them don't really want the development process. They either think they've already learned leadership or they simply don't want it. And so it doesn't work very well with them. Uh, same in universities. Those people, when you, try to, when you try to include everyone or, you know, 100% of the student body, half of them are going to just sit there with their arms crossed and they're not going to want it or do well at it. But, and, and in universities, of course, people think selection, self-selection is a bias. It's not. It's our friend. Self-selection shows you who will work at being a leader? You know, who will do the hard, dirty work that it takes to learn to be better? And that's where you put your resources. It's wasteful to put your resources against people who don't really want it or aren't going to do well at it. And the best indication of that is that they show up. <laughs> You know, we just we've just blown up about we've blown up thousands of jobs now. But so, so and you know, it, it's it's that one, and you're heading up towards forty percent. Is that right of of Rice student body who have been involved with the with the institute? I'm sorry, say that again. You're heading up to about you the, the number of people, the percentage of students who have been in, who've had interactions with with you with the institute at Rice. Where what percentage are you at now? Yeah, it's about forty yeah. percent. The entire student body from all seven schools. Now we do get an outsized participation from MBA students, as as you might expect. Uh, but for the most part, when you look across the university, whether it's engineers or poets or physicists, uh, it's about forty percent. And and you know, we've had really high performing leaders come out of the music school. We've had cellists who are interested in being better leaders in the orchestra and the quartet and leading in the arts. Uh, you know, we've had architects 
who wanted to be better at leading design teams and managing construction teams. And so almost everywhere you look in the university, regardless of major, you have this group of 30 to 40% who really want to lead in their field. That's where you put your money. That's where you put your effort. Um, and, it, and it works really well. I mean, it works really well. They, they learn very quickly. So I will direct um, the, the audience to your, your podcast on, I think it was Substance or, Substance or Fluff, you gave to the Rice alumni. Um, and in that, you go through the research findings and the, um, some of the stuff that you've got in, in leadership reckoning. And um, I think it, it's Ryan that, that leads Libby. What was Libby's role in the, in the book? So Libby is a terrific leadership author. Uh, and her role was to initially write the book. Okay, right. Do the first draft for us. And, and uh, she did a terrific job. And then Ryan came in and added the measurement work and some of the technicals from the perspective of a research psychologist. And then I followed up. I mean, I, I coached them all through the whole process, but then I followed up and, and kind of put my own editing and, and touches into it. And, uh, and I think the book is a terrific representation of what we've been doing over the last five years. And, uh, you know, we, we use that book to help other people build their own development strategies. We don't sell anything in the book. Uh, we believe organizations, whether universities or businesses, should have their own strategies. But we talk about first principles, Leadership has to be a core, core function in your organization. Use evidence-based techniques. Use professional people. Measure outcomes. These principles apply to any organization, not just universities, but businesses. You know, I worked for a very well-known U.S. company at their, at their uh, corporate university where they would develop their their own leaders, and they, people would go there for two weeks and live there and, and learn. A lot of their development was just a parade of speakers, retired CEOs or from in the organization, telling them what they thought about leadership and, and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, it was pretty much a waste of time. Uh, everyone had to act like they liked it, but it was uh, – it was not directed at shaping those individuals into a certain kind of leader, uh, the, way, the way that uh, using professional people, using evidence-based techniques, uh, you know, coaching. I mean, if I could figure out, or if I could argue there was one single thing that people could do to get better, it would be have a professional leadership coach. And if you don't have a lot of money, buy three sessions and then six to eight months later, buy three more. Uh, I, I went and became involved in coaching as sort of a skeptic. But all of our metrics say that when you use professional coaches, not amateurs, not self-declared coaches, but people who make their living in business through coaching, Nothing progresses our students faster than that. Nothing. And I've had, I've had my own experiences with coaches 
and they have transformed my life in a lot of ways. So, um, and that's from outcome measurement. Mm. You don't find these things out unless you check. No, I think that the thing that I get in, in the, in the process that you, that you take, that you write about in the book, um, is that there was the, the presupposition that the student was already a leader. So one of the, one of the, the, the funniest things I saw was you did an interview with one of your coaches and he not only did he, he'd only just, he only just found out that you wrote a book on leadership. So that, what I, what's that clear is that at no point do you, do you refer to that or do you care about that in your work today? Even though, in my opinion, it's one of the best books on leadership and one of the most important in terms of, in terms of what that book did and what your work at West Point did for, for developing evidence-based leadership for extreme situations. It's extraordinarily important work. Thank you. He didn't know about it. Right. And, and likewise, right. You know, and it's so, and he's one of the, you know, and, he, and so he's like, he's a, he's a really smart guy, but you just don't care about it. Right. And the, the other thing is, so you, you sit a young person down and you get someone and it's like, who's, a, you know, a normally very highly paid coach. And it's like, okay, student, what would you like to work on? We've given you, we've, we've gone, you've gone through some assessments, EQ assessments and leadership assessments. What do you think you ought to focus on? which in and of itself is a leadership step, right? They have to have, for that to work, they have to have a view of themselves and a view of the future that they want, right? Because the whole thing about leadership, one of the things that, what, one of the great bits of research in, in this book is the importance of a learning orientation and internal motivation, right? So in, the, in essence, it's really, the, you know, all the, all the learning from that book's in, you know, at, at the Institute, but you've just, it's just invisible, right? Yeah, you know, it... Uh... It's funny. The, I, I always felt like the people who really needed to know about that book know about it. You know, they've read it and they've taken from, from it what, what they need to. But this notion of students selecting their own path and, and working and being more of a client than a student is totally foreign in most of higher education, at least in the United States. Students spend their whole lives pleasing professors, rabbiting back, reporting back, you know, what they've, what they've learned. And when they meet with a coach, a lot of times, one of the first things they say at the end of the session is, how'd I do? The coach always says, you don't get this yet. It's how I do. You're the client. I'm the coach. You know, I'm, I'm working for you. And uh, students find that really refreshing. Once they catch on, they really like to be in the driver's seat for their own development. Because guess what? For the rest of their life, they're going to be in the driver's seat for their own development. So if you don't put them there right away, um, you know, they, they don't learn to manage their own development. And yeah, we've got yeah. increasing amounts of evidence that after going through this programming, it changes them in terms of their development. And that it lasts, not just a year or two, but we're seeing these effects, you know, five, seven years out. And um, it, it affects all kinds of things. Our, our graduates who go through our programming give back more to the university in donations than other students. And we're not really sure why, but we know we've impacted them in that way. 
It's a loyalty issue. It's an appreciation issue. Well, so, so, you know, I mean, I know it's a, I'm stretching the Rogerian term, but you showed, you showed love. You've showed love to those students, but at the very least, profound levels of care. And you've said to them, in a way, in behaviorally, you matter. And you matter enough that we want you to succeed at whatever you choose to do, we will support you in it. So there's a, there's a, there's a wonderful challenge there, but it's, but it's mostly an inspirational challenge, isn't it? Part of it's inspiration, but you know, the other thing is coaches get results. So students can see the change. You know, they know they've changed. We've had parents come back and say, what did you do with my child? They're, they're a different person now. You know, they came and they were such an introvert and they thought they couldn't do anything. And now they want to run their own company. So like, how do you do that? How do you make that happen? And it's because we invest in them. We put them first. It's not about our research. It's not about us teaching a one over the world class to a hundred students. It's one at a time. And you wouldn't think you could scale one at a time, but you can, you know, it's very possible. It just requires a little bit of management some systems approach. Um, And the other thing that I really love about working with students one at a time is that you don't have to spend as much time on separate diversity programs for everyone. Because whether that person's a woman or white or black or Asian, whether they're gay or straight, When you work one at a time, you've got all those demographics in the room and you can focus on what's best for that individual. The highest level of diversity is one at a time. And those other programs, if you try to build them out for everyone, it exhausts your budget. Many of them have been popularized because they make a lot of money. But when you're providing development, you're on the buyer side of that, not on the seller side. So being able to work with them one at a time takes care of all that demographic stuff. Uh, It just requires a skilled coach that knows how to relate to a woman or a minority or, you know, whatever it happens to be. Uh, and, And then that makes every dollar we spend much more efficient. Our model is very lean. This has been the Art and Science of Success. I'm Jonathan Brown. If you want to learn more about the topics we've discussed today, be sure to visit alppartners.com where you'll find the show notes and other resources. And if you join our community there, you'll get access to even more battle-tested ideas to help you create success for yourself and your organization. You can also arrange a free call to explore how we can help you accelerate learning and performance in your organization If you enjoyed this show, be sure to subscribe. And if you have a minute, pop over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to give us a positive rating. Thanks for listening.